You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have Victoria N. Alexander. Uh, she's a director of the Dactyl Foundation, a Fulbright specialist. And we'll be talking about uh, the book, The Biologist's Mistress, Rethinking Self-Organization in Literature, Art, and Nature. And uh, Victoria is a biosemiotician, where I'm not really familiar right. with, yes. which we'll get into. Um, so, yeah, Victoria, welcome. How are you doing? Hi. Thank you. I'm fine. Thank you. We study the sign use in biological systems. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say... Um, <clears throat> You know, when I when I speak to like super accomplished people like you, your bios are so long that a lot of times I'll have to do a separate bio talk because uh, you know I usually screw them up and I can't capture nearly all the things that you do. So uh, you know, you are again. It looks like you have a tremendous background. So how long have you been involved in uh, focusing on biology, and what sparked your interest, however many years ago? Oh, well, I've uh, moved around a lot in about. 1998 or so, I was working on a degree in literature, a PhD in literature, and I was interested in questions of intentionality and narrative structure. To make a long story short, because there's a lot of digressions, I was working on Vladimir Nabokov, the Russian-American novelist, who was also a butterfly scientist, and he had a very interesting theory of evolution which you could call a biosemiotic theory of evolution. And I visited the Santa Fe Institute, the Center for Complex System Science, and um, I and I just happened to mention that I was working on this um, novelist who you know, was, and they said, we're doing a workshop on that type of evolutionary mechanism. Right now, we thought we were the first in the world. To <laughs> and so uh-huh. they invited me to stay, and I ended up... Um, doing research there for two years, and I had a physicist on my dissertation committee for for my English degree, and that led to my becoming a biosemiotician because that incorporates the work with um, understanding how meaning is created, the semiotics, um, in biology. Um, well, what, can you give a longer description? Like, what, you know, I looked up, you know, on Google, biosemiotics is... I guess signs and codes as they apply to biology, but what's what's a more complete description of what it is? Yeah, I want to give you a very very concrete picture of what it means to read a sign because I I think that's really abstract when you 
when you put, talk about, you know, how does a sign have meaning? Um, so what does it mean to read a sign? It's like a word or a pictogram or a smell or a sound that's a sign of something else, right? Um, sign use right. is basically intelligence. Um, and we can train a computer to read a sign, right? We're going to have self-driving cars pretty soon that are going to be able to do that. But can we train a computer to interpret a sign that depends on context to understand something? And yeah, maybe I guess if not- I think about dogs, you know, they, they seem to go very much on, you know, nonverbal communication, you know, how their tail is moving and if it's raised or lowered. And it's weird, like I watch my dogs communicate and I can't always see what goes on, but they somehow know. Yeah. They're reading signs. You know, anything that's regular in the environment can be a sign. And in biosemiotics, we say that the human ability to interpret signs, which is the ability to think, really, to think creatively and adaptively and, and learn new things, it didn't just emerge with animals. Rudimentary sign reading emerged in the simplest forms of life with single-cell organisms. Um, every cell in our body uses signs to interpret its environment and to respond intelligently. And to respond intelligently just means to preserve itself or to preserve the body as a whole. So cells don't just react to the chemistry around them. They they actually respond. They actually interpret. Um, And I can spend the entire interview unpacking the difference between respond and just a reaction. You know, a chemical reaction. Like if you picked up a a burning, um, a, a hot, cup or something and your hand releases it, that's just a reaction, right? There's no sign reading there. Um, But when you do something that's indirect and is for a purpose, for instance, you ask a scientist to give you an example of some intelligent behavior in an animal, like um, a crow. There's these famous experiments where a crow is presented with a narrow um, glass cylinder with water in it and food floating on it. And the crow can't get to it. But the crow figures out that if he goes and gets some pebbles and brings them back and puts them in, he'll displace the water and raise the level and eventually he'll get the food out. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's typical um, tool use and that's means to an end. So you know that's intelligent because the bird is planning ahead, right? It's taking several multiple steps in order to get to an outcome. And to look at that from a biosemiotic point of view, each one of those steps, gathering the first pebble and the second pebble, those are signs of the ultimate benefit that he'll receive. So let's put this now to look at it, look at biology. When any one of you, let's go to the smallest unit of life. When any one of your cells gets involved in a metabolic pathway, Sometimes there's like a dozen steps involved, chemical reactions. And each one of those steps is meaningless until you get to the final one, which produces the end product that the cell needs. And um, these steps have been sort of cobbled together in evolutionary time. Um, But each one of those steps signifies to the cell, you know, the, the cell, it doesn't really know, oh, I need to, you know, convert this chemical into this one. Um, but each one of those steps that the cell takes is a sign of the ultimate benefit. So that's the concrete picture that I want to give you for what it actually means for something to have meaning and refer to something else. Well, I have a quick question here. So, you know, at first I thought, oh, a sign is just a visual thing, but 
can a sign be a um a chemical gradient? You know, can a, what what other things can a sign be? Because you know, individual cells don't have like eyeballs that they're seeing things. Right. So a gradient is for me the perfect example of a sign. Uh, any kind of regularity or difference, a difference that makes a difference to that living system. So yes, you know, pressure gradient, sugar gradient. Um, that, you know, a single cell organism can swim toward or, you know, some sort of threshold that triggers something in a cell. But sort of the, one of the important things and um, something that I'm working on now, which is comparing biological intelligence to artificial intelligence and talking about what the difference is. Um, oh, that's really interesting, huh? Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I did so much work on uh, Vladimir Nabokov, which is, fascinating working with, you know, such an intelligent, creative person. Now, in the course of doing my work with Vladimir Nabokov, he was working on reaction diffusion processes and how this these form butterfly wing patterns, which I worked on that for 20 years. <laughs> um, Alan Turing discovered the equations for the butterfly wing pattern. And so I'm now working on Alan Turing's work in biology, which he was doing right before he died. Um, and um, and he was getting to the difference between artificial intelligence and bio- biological intelligence. It's too bad that he died. Well, uh, yeah. Um. Quick question here. So, if you have a single cell and it can sense, you know, chemical gradients or other things, pressure gradients, et cetera, the interpretation of a sign. I mean, doesn't that require a mind, or does it not? It's like a reaction doesn't seem to require a mind or thinking, but you know, interpreting a sign in a sophisticated way does. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. What What are your thoughts on that? That's the first question that anybody should ask. And does your do your neurons have minds? <laughs> Collectively, they make up one. Um, so mm. your your neurons are behaving in the same stupid way that a, an individual, you know, like a single cell organism would. It's just responding to gradients and patterns too. But collectively they they exhibit intelligent behavior. And let me try to get there step by step. So the difference between um, what a computer might do and what a biological um, cell might do, so I spoke of these metabolic pathways. And what we call those in um, biosemiotics is uh, a semiotic habit. Um, it's a chain of events that got cobbled together over time. And I like to think of them... See, some of the various steps could be traded out for a different chemical. Like maybe there's 10 or 12 different chemicals that are involved in this metabolic pathway, but some other, you know, fructose and and, uh, glucose could be substituted. And maybe it would take a little little bit longer, it'd be a little bit more awkward, but you have the same outcome. Um, Computers don't do that, right? They have to be more precise. And also biological... um, Semiotic habits are not very um, efficient. They're kind of clumsy and awkwardly put together, like like maybe they were put together by evolution instead of by a designer. <laughs> like if you were if you were going to design that, you would have made it a lot more efficient, more like a computer algorithm. Um, but think of a metabolic pathway, a semiotic habit, as a Rube Goldberg machine. Do you know what that is? Yeah, like if you want to, you know, it's. It... A ball falls down and strikes a boot and, you know, flips over something else. They're a super complicated machine, unnecessarily complicated to do one simple thing. Unnecessarily complicated that achieves some goal. 
and if it were a biological Rube Goldberg machine, it would reset itself at the end of the cycle. Well, nature is kind of like that. Like you have the boot. You mentioned the boot that kicks the ball. Well, you could substitute right. that boot with a high heel or something like that. Um, so nature can substitute things that are sort of similar. Um, you know that okay. any 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 chemical signal to a cell has a receptor that has a similar shape. And so some other hormone, chemical, compound, protein might fit into the receptor coincidentally and either disrupt the process or make the process continue or make the process go in a different way. And a lot of right, drugs... Right yeah. So, so the biological cell is interpreting things to be similar to something else because it has a system of interpretation that receptor that can bind with things that are similar. And some interpretations that it might make would be the equivalent of some sort of mistake and something might go terribly wrong in the process. But it might discover a new metabolic pathway, um, you know, if it responds to sugar, um, fructose instead of glucose. So it might... How about learn... something like, um, like, like insulin resistance? Is that a... Um... A deliberate adaptation by cells, I guess, to preserve themselves against, you know, too much sugar, for instance? Is that an example of a sign that's interpreted? Um, I, I don't know the specifics of that, so I couldn't say, but every every um, response in your body is some kind of interpretation. Some interpretations can become so automatic and so entrenched that they're, they are effectively mechanical responses, and they're not really that interpretive. Other responses that your body can have, um, there's a lot more flexibility there. Um, the, the processes in your body that are vital to survival are going to be a lot more entrenched. Um, the brain is, of course, very flexible. And um, if you've ever thought about um, the way that your dream logic goes, that's basically your subconscious brain. That's the way your subconscious brain processes information all the time. Always according to, you know, you can be dreaming and, you know, you're, you're dreaming you're in a, in a room of your home and then you think of something yellow and that makes you think of the New Mexican yellow sun and suddenly you're in a Me New Mexico and then you're skiing and then you're flying. <laughs> the logic usually goes from similarity to similarity. And um, so your brain organizes things um, according to some sort of arbitrary similarity or arbitrary um, proximity. You, you like you you remembered um, those flashbacks. You remember where you were when Princess Diana died when you heard the news. You right. immediately can picture everything in the room. So your subconscious brain um, classifies everything in this sort of poetic logic. Um, people with synesthesia, they're very good at recalling arbitrary numbers and dates and things because they can picture them like numbers or, or letters might have textures or smells to them that they can imagine. Um, and uh, people, you know, the mnemonic clues that you use to recall things um, are, you know, associating things with other arbitrary things. Um, you can re you can remember things if you um, if it's a song if you put it into lyrics if you associate something with something else you can remember it better and that's because our brains are fundamentally 
um, uh, classify things according to similarity and proximity. And those are that's how signs are formed. If something is similar, if something is nearby, if something is arbitrarily associated. And that's an icon, an index, and a symbol. Yeah, and I've been told, I'm sure many people have been told that we look for patterns in everything, whether they're there or not. So I guess we're, we're geared towards seeking out and interpreting signs all the time. We're very good at it. And um, in animals in a natural environment, if they see two things together in the environment, it's quite reasonable for them over time to associate cause and effect, that those are causally related all the time. Um, and so that's a that sort of, you know, arbitrary association between two things that just happen to be in the environment, that's a good, healthy response for a natural environment. But in our unnatural environment, um, you know, we can see things on TV that are placed together and we come to associate them as linked, causally linked. Some, you know, marketing can do this, um, propaganda can do this to us. And so um, it's it's also, uh, it could be a way to investigate sensitivities in food. Um, if your body is having a negative response to you know, some vegetable that you've eaten with um, some sort of toxic pesticides or something, um, your body may come to associate the property of the tomato with that toxic pesticide. So you have a reaction, your body has a, a reaction to the toxic, take the toxins away and you still have that bad reaction to the tomato even though there's no toxin there because the body has associated the properties of the tomato with the toxin and is having that same reaction that the tomato becomes a sign hmm. of the toxin. Maybe that's where the placebo effect comes from in part. It's most probably where the placebo effect comes from. And, uh, you know, we have to stop treating a, the body like it's a machine and it has just reactions to to codes in the world. The body is an organic machine. It has responses or interpretations to signs, which means it's flexible, it can learn, it can adapt, but it also can make terrible mistakes. And I I suspect that a lot of the you know, um, syndromes and the the various kinds of diseases that we just, we can't find a, a direct cause for is probably um, the body and the cells um, misinterpreting signs and, and developing um, dysfunctional semiotic habits that um, keep, that are continually reaffirmed. Um, um, so that would be where I would suggest that people um, researching that those issues go there i am not in the medical part I, but i've um i'm editing a volume now where there are some people who are contributing some biostimulations who are contributing to that and i find that really interesting i'm i'm well, what, are, what are some of the yeah what are some of the big questions you're looking at well well my my main concern is uh just defining what it, what intelligence is in terms of it is sign reading and responding to things in the environment as if they stand for something else and and also stressing the fact that semiotics and sign reading is purposeful behavior it's always the means end the taking the steps to get to a goal those two aspects are related. I started out 
as a teleologist studying whether or not there's the, the existence of apparent design in nature. Um, because I was interested in design in art. You know, what makes nature seem like a work of art and what makes people say, hey, there's a, there must be a creator because you can't have all these patterns and coincidences, um, you know, piling up. They, you know, it seems like somebody must have intended that. Um, and so I, when I was at the Santa Fe Institute, I was studying uh, self-organization, which you've probably spoken about with other people on this program. Um, what are your they, thoughts on it? Do you think there is a creator or designer, or is it just the laws of physics or what uh, cause everything to happen? Well, it's not just the laws of physics. Um, the laws of physics don't... Um, they're, they're self-organizing. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite examples of self-organization is found in Genesis, when the light and the dark were separated. And um, what that is, and I, and I think that the I think that the writers of Genesis had an intuitive grasp of what self-organization meant. And self-organization is creation by differentiation. You can start off with chaos, everything just all mixed up, and if there is a slight fluctuation somewhere in the chaos, um, where um, you know there's a little bit, you know, like a a blob of something that coheres together. Then suddenly you have a slight difference in this chaos. There's one little area that's, you know, more blobbier than all the others. That can be self-reinforcing. And as soon as it starts, it can cascade and eventually create some sort of gravity and a big bang. <laughs> so... um so it's really sort of interesting that the writers of Genesis had apparently this two way intu intuitive idea of of self organization, and um, that was what Alan Turing was working on. Um, he was working on em looking at embryology. How did you know these perfectly identical cells suddenly start differentiating? Was there a signal? Was there a code? Was there a trigger? And all the biologists at the time were looking for some sort of inducer, like a DNA code that turned everything on. And he realized that if there was just some sort of fluctuation, some sort of instability where something was just randomly different from everything else, that slight difference could compound itself and then trigger a reaction um, so that that little cell of instability would grow. And um, people actually think that, a, that a, from a single cell, a whole person comes about because of slight differences or because of a, an, you know, an inherent design and plan and, you know, structure and, and all that and direction. Well, also an, an organism has, of course, evolved for centuries um, and DNA material has been added um, for eons. And so it's not you know, just one or the other, you know, just self-organization or, or, you know, or just the DNA. It's a long history and evolution. But what what triggers the DNA, um, and, and the DNA, people speak of it as if it's some sort of agent, um, as if it has um, causal powers to make decisions, 
that it tells the cells what to do. It directs the cells to turn them on. What DNA really is, is more like um, a template uh, that produces the right materials and the right amounts at, the, at roughly the right time. And it's the cell that interprets the DNA and uses it like a tool. And what Alan Turing found was if there's a slight difference in one area of the cell, that will differentially trigger the DNA. So the cell becomes slight, this cell in this one area becomes slightly different from all the others. So that cell now triggers different DNA than the other cells are. And so that's how differentiation begins. It doesn't begin with the DNA first. It begins with the cell first. The cell first becomes different and triggers the DNA. So it's, it's yeah, really the... So why would, why would people develop in a very similar way billions and billions and billions of times if it was dependent upon slight, the slight differences themselves must have been purposeful and with intention. Otherwise, how could we all approximately look similar and have two arms and legs and all that stuff? Well, um, that was my, you know, I, I went into this field because I was interested in the idea of intentionality. What is it? You know, why are we similar? Why do animals all have the same similar body plan? Why do we have a a mouse like mammal animal and um and and a like or a rat and an opossum? Those are not they don't have the same ancestor and yet they're very similar and it seems like nature has these variations on a theme. It seems designed. It seems like there's a creator kind of inventing these things because you do see these repetitions. And although self-organization can start with just some sort of random trigger, um, it it has a tendency to fall into order. It's like a snowflake um, also is highly ordered, and it's just random um, where the little ice crystals happen to fall and and begin to shape the snowflake um but it's the it's well, the I, shape I, I spoke to a scientist named adrian bajan and he talks about something called the constructal law and he's seeming to say that it's literally a law of physics it's a fundamental principle that will cause you know let's say your lungs to branch out in a certain way or you know streams to form tributaries and uh you know, same thing for snowflakes to form and that kind of thing. Yeah, these are the these are the properties of self-organizing systems. Um, they tend to bifurcate at a at a certain point. Um, your hand, the first bifurcation is the thumb and the four fingers, and then there's two more bifurcations with the other two fingers. That work was done by Brian Goodwin um, at the Santa Fe Institute. Um, yes, the self-organization just means that um, it's the properties of the materials, the physical properties of the materials um, in your body as they're developing that shape the materials, not the DNA. The DNA doesn't have to tell the the material what to do. It's going to be the, the physics um, and the constraints on the, you know, the shape of the molecules, just like with the snowflake. It's the it's the shape of the water molecule that constrains how it gets attached. So you don't need to have um, a blueprint or instructions for a snowflake on how to put itself together. It's going to fall together 
but the constraints are going to limit the way it can fall together. So it both has chance, you know, completely random chance where the crystals happen to hit, and it has constraints that limit the way they can form together. And any chemical reaction in your body is going to be the same way. Um, When I was studying butterfly wing pattern development, for instance, you don't need DNA to tell uh, the pattern how to form. Like the DNA doesn't have a little code of, um, you know, like the eye spot pattern. Um, That forms simply because the first chemicals that come up to form the pattern diffuse away faster than the second group of chemicals that come up and they react together. And some butterfly wing patterns, it looks like there's a wave of pattern that washed over the wing and then crested and then there's another wave. And that's a reaction diffusion process turning itself on and off. It's a chemical reaction that has a reaction for a given amount of time, and then it runs out of one of the chemicals that it needs. And so it changes, and now it's a a different kind of chemical reaction. But that chemical reaction has a byproduct, which happens to be that first chemical that the the reaction ran out of, so it switches back on to the new um, reaction. So so this is a case where you have a pattern self-organizing. There's no blueprint for it. There's no instructions for it. It's entirely because of the nature of the materials involved and how they interact that forms a a pattern and that differentiates itself. Um, So you can imagine the universe forming in the same way through differentiation. This kind of makes everything sound, I don't know, dull in a way. What's some of the blow-your-mind type stuff that you've seen or observed or learned? I want to hear the excitement and the... Yeah, I can't believe it from you. You know, what what, what things like have been that way for you in your life? Well, um, I guess the first thing that um, started me interested in the idea of self-organization is um, I was in the in academia in the postmodern environment where it was said, you know, of course there's no God, but the author is also dead, um, which means that an author and people generally don't have any control over their actions. They only are, they're determined by their culture and their language. Okay, it was kind of a determinism, you know, uh, unlike genetic determinism where you're completely physically determined versus you're determined by your culture. Um, And I, like most people, negatively had a negative response to that, right? Nobody likes to say that you are... (laughs) <laughs> that you don't have free will. And so my my goal was to um un- to get away from that way of thinking about the world that that we don't have any kind of free will. And um so I I'm also a novelist and so like Vladimir Nabokov it gave me a window on the creative process. And I was trying, when I was into the postmodern thing, I was trying to write a novel that was stark realism with no suggestion of any kind of artistry, like a creator might, you know, perform miracles or something, you know, like no miraculous meaning at the crossroads, no symbolism to refer to a greater meaning or anything like that. You know, that stark realism of of, of postmodernism. 
And as I was writing, um, all these patterns, um, variations on a theme, just cropped up on their own. And I realized that um, this is this, you know, we can guess it's the subconscious um, that forms these patterns. And so I, I realized that intentionality is self-organization. And we do have, um, we develop over time, we're, we're not strictly determined by physics. We're not strictly determined by our culture and our language. We develop our own semiotic habits. And since we have the ability to interpret signs in our world, as I was describing that cells do, we have the tendency to, we have the ability to learn. We have the ability, very importantly, to make mistakes. We can misinterpret things in the world, and those mistakes may lead to discoveries. And um, through those mistakes that only we could make, because those mistakes come out of our own idiosyncratic way of viewing the world. And when, and so that's, those are moments when we act creatively. And that's, those are moments that we can actually take responsibility for whatever we achieved because we, we can't say that it's physical determinism that did this. And we can't say that it's just our culture that determined that. Those really were self-caused. And so, um, studying art, biosemiotics, so was Obama wrong when he said you didn't build that? You know, the government did it. The entrepreneurs. Oh. <laughs> it's an example. It's just you know teasing, but kind of an example. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, about what was he pointing to, um, but. Oh, he was saying that uh, he seemed to say that entrepreneurs didn't build their businesses. It's, it's only because of the government and the things the government the did that economy. built their businesses. But. Yeah. No, I. You didn't even have to answer. Like I'm just joking. But. Yeah, I, no, I, I like, I, I, I love in the individual creativity, and I guess what has been driving me, you know, personally, other than just intellectual curiosity, is is the need really to um, give some sort of scientific defense of what we call free will, um, and it is both the ability to um, it to act kind of like a, you know, an automaton sometimes, you know, like automatically, like we drive our car, we're not really thinking, we're just sort of automatically running these um, algorithms that, you know, get us where we need to go. And, um, but sometimes when we apply those algorithms, those procedures, those semiotic habits, we can do so in a misinterpretive way that is only the kind of interpretation that we could come up with. You know, if you are particularly given to puns or, you know, one thing makes you or think that, of something or bad jokes. Other, bad jokes, you know, you just have a creative kind of way of jumping from one subject and the, using that dream logic sometimes to go from one idea to another. Um, then you can act creatively and you, you have to have both of those things that, that sort of rule bound procedure, kind of almost machine-like behavior, sometimes to keep you on track and to give you all those all those rules and conventions that you can use to interpret your world. But on mm. top of that, you need to be able to break conventions occasionally, too. And it's those two together. And, and I think that that's extremely important for the arts, too, is realizing the importance of both the convention and the breaking of the convention. 
And this is important for evolution, too. You know, the stability of the species and then the species' ability to um, undergo mutation and, and to adapt as well. And, and the, so, do you, do you, so do you think there's free will in evolution? Meaning, um, you know, the level that, uh, you, you know, creatures can somewhat choose their own environment, especially people, and therefore that environment then acts upon them and changes them. Well, so essentially by free will, they're choosing their evolutionary path somewhat. The individual in the environment does have some control over um, evolution, and um, and I think you've talked to some of my you've talked to some of my third way colleagues, Dennis Noble and mm-hmm. Jim Shapiro, and with um, I've I've argued for butterfly mimicry. You know that you know one species looks like another species in order to have some sort of protective advantage is not caused by Darwinian gradual selection, where you have just some sort of random mutation that accumulates over time. Um, it, right. it makes no sense at all to explain mimicry in that way. Mimicry is, in, in many cases, mimicry may just be that the two butterflies happen to look alike and it serves no purpose whatsoever. And in other cases, and this is Vladimir Nabokov's theory, he, he thought that, you know, the monarch in the, in the viceroy butterflies, mm-hmm. the viceroy people thought imitated the monarch because it's bitter. It tastes bad. So that gives it a, an advantage. Well, Nabokov mm. tasted both of them and he said that they both taste bad. <laughs> 40 years later, <laughs> yeah, he was an empiricist as well as an artist. And 40 years later, they came to that same conclusion. Um, but then they said, well, maybe they both they both taste bad, so maybe they both sort of reinforce each other, which is just trying to save the save the idea that it's mimicry. Um, the the other mimic form they they look alike because of self organizing laws of pattern formation. That particular pattern in the reaction diffusion process that that causes those two patterns is just very very common, and the likelihood over evolutionary time of those two butterflies finding that same pattern is, is fairly high. It's, it's like winning the lottery, but people win the lottery every once in a while. Scientists aren't very good sometimes with fantastic coincidences. Sometimes they happen. And then there's the coincidence. Have you ever seen the um, dead leaf butterfly? The, the dead leaf a, butterfly? It's a butterfly that looks exactly like a dead leaf. You know, it's got the leaf vein. It's even got, like, little um, holes where it looks like a caterpillar took a few bites out of it, right? This is an amazingly um, realistic leaf. Um, and Nabokov was charmed by this because, for one thing, this, this insect occurs mostly in um, tropical forests where... It sits on bright green leaves and where it's very conspicuous. <laughs> and so it okay. just, it's, it's disguised as them, it's no good. Um, it, it's probably not Darwinian selection, gradual selection that refined this insect and made it look more and more like a dead leaf. It's very likely that, um, that it just appeared like that in a single generation. And you can make the argument that that might be le- likely if you if you look at the way reaction diffusion processes happen. That it's it's likely that that particular pattern could have been formed by normal um, reaction diffusion processes 
if the if the wing pattern were shifted slightly. It's just like um, clouds in the sky could form the shape of poodles pretty easily. Or the, or the Mother Mary and a piece of toast that sold on eBay for a million dollars. <laughs> well, I don't know. Are toast given to that particular? But, you, but you know, poodles, because they're fluffy like clouds, hmm. there's, there's a greater chance of clouds forming poodle-like shapes than Doberman shapes, say. But that's a, that's a very, I mean, that's not a really specific look. That's kind of, yeah, that cloud looks like a poodle, but it's, it doesn't have eyes and features where it looks exactly like a poodle. You know, but with the dead leaf butterfly, maybe the explanation is that, you know, where they live used to be a different type of uh, forest where there were dead leaves and they evolved to look like them. And then now that their circumstances have changed, they haven't, they haven't changed. Maybe there's been no pressure to do that or... They're too slow well, at it. If they, if the, there's a very good chance that they could have appeared in a single generation, if you look at the, if you look at the chemistry, and and if you, if if they were knocked out by while they're developing, if they're knocked out by some extreme temperature or humidity difference, because there's related butterflies that do, um, you know, if you subject them to harsh conditions, they have slightly different forms that are pretty close to the dead butterfly on, on some of the wings, like the you know, either the upper or the lower level. So it, it could have happened in this in this single generation. And then if it did happen and these butterflies spent time on the forest floor eating because they eat like decaying matter, um, then they could have been mistaken for a dead leaf by predators. And then they might have a chance of proliferating very quickly because now they have an advantage. But it's not necessary to assume that it was gradually, you know, like millions and millions of chance mutations adding up time after time after time, coming a little bit closer and a little bit closer. Um, Nabokov said that natural selection was an editor, not a creator. Natural selection is a proofreader. Natural selection isn't able to create things. Creation really comes when the the uh, predator comes along and misinterprets it for a leaf. And so now you you you've instead of having um, innovation being caused by random change and competition, and having natural selection and competition for reproductive systems fitness being the driver of evolution, now you have these kind of crazy coincidences plus interpretation. And mm. the role of interpretation is in the forefront now with a biosemiotic view of evolution. And whenever you have, whenever you, it's, it's just highly unlikely that, you know, single point nucleotide changes would add up result in anything but dysfunction in a developing organism. Um, no, I agree. I, I don't think that random mutation, I mean, for many, many, many reasons. That's, that's like saying that, I don't know, the world's just all blind luck and the world has no intelligence to it, but there'd be no such thing as biosemiotics if, if there was no intelligence in the world. I mean, a sign is a sign because there's some creature that can experience it and interpret it and take action it might not otherwise have taken. And so, a yeah, sign I, is a sign in the body. To this a sign is a sign in the body too, where there's a sign system cell receptors that can interpret so 
that, you know, some sort of protein that's folded in a different way can interpret it in a new way, which which might, you know, end in some sort of adaptive change for that organism. But it's the system of interpretation that the cell has that it brings to this, you know, random change that really is what's driving the direction of evolution. And so, you know, if you think of what the, the cell and what the body can do to with information that it encounters, any regularity in its environment, any kind of pattern or gradient, if it interprets it, then, um, you know, the, the, the agency of, of evolution is much more in the organism and it's not just in random change and competition. And, and thinking that way, okay. random change and competition has driven, you know, the, the, all the other areas that are affected by this, um, this view that that's how innovation occurs with competition. It, it drives politics, it drives economics, it drives business. What you really want, you know, the, the natural selection calls out diversity and it tends to regularize um, the system. It tends to make species all the same and it gets rid of diversity. Right. What you What you need for innovation is diversity. You need to um, have natural selection not working at all. No pressure on different forms so that a variety of forms can explore the entire morphological space. And then if one of those well, forms... I, I think you do need pressure. Otherwise, there'd be no incentive to explore any space. There's no pr- I, well, I think you have to have some pressure. Otherwise, you just sit, you know, essentially organisms would just sit on the couch and and do nothing. You know, be couch potatoes. Well, well, if first you need to have the diversity so that you open up the morphological space and you get a lot of different types of structures and organisms, and then selection can come and work. Then one of those, you know, the great out of the great diversity of things, um, one can stand out. Um, if if the environment changes, if you have a lot of diversity and the environment suddenly changes, it, 90% of them are going to die off, but there's going to be 10% that have some sort of different ability that can adapt to that new situation. And so um, having a way to um, cultivate diversity and not have um, selection happen too soon in an environment um, you know, maybe in the economic environment to allow um, entrepreneurs, you know, if they had a little bit more space to grow and experiment and make mistakes, because mistakes are the key to innovation, um, then innovation might occur faster. But we we tend to call out um, too soon and, you know, right away you have to be successful, successfully reproducing. But um, innovation really requires, you know, relaxing selection pressures for some time. I mean, at least childhood. You have to at least have right, a period right. where you can, you know, be creative and do whatever. Um, you know, but it's it's always both. You know, I, I'm, you know, I, you know, selection is very important because that's that's when uh, interpretation um, comes into play. Um, you, you inter- there's a diversity out there and you interpret some what would be a meaningless pattern you interpret it as something meaningful and you're off you know with some new great invention okay um, 
Well, well, very good. We're um, and it's been a great call. We're we're just about out of time. What's the best way for folks to learn more? You know, possibly to engage with you or to read your works and you know find out more. Well, um, my my book is the Biologist Mistress, and that is uh, referring to Haldane. Is, is the quote is attributed to him, but maybe it was Mark Twain or whoever, all those other Churchill. Teleology <laughs> um, uh, is like a mistress to a biologist. He can't live without her, but he doesn't want to be seen with her in public. And so scientists aren't supposed to think that the world has purpose, that there's design yeah. in nature, but they can't get away from it, right? Organisms seem designed. They are purposeful. Mm-hmm. And every process in your body is purposeful. And the way to explain that scientifically is to understand that purposeful behavior is sign action. And its means end is sign action. And so there's a perfectly legitimate but explanation, but still one that preserves our agency and our ability to have free will and to make our, and take responsibility for our decisions in nature too. Hmm. Well, very good. I mean, it sounds like a really interesting book. Um, I'm going to pick it up and, and go through it. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the call. This has been great. Thank you. Your comments and questions were fantastic. Oh, thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.